0: We're going to study themes in this series. One theme from each letter. Today we're going to focus on the theme of drifting away from Christ. Which of course, as you heard, is a central theme in this letter. That means that we're going to be focusing in on verses 4 and 5. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Therefore... I'm sorry, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now it had been over 40 years since the gospel first made inroads in this region of Asia Minor where Ephesus is. Some of the churches... We're beginning to stray. It's not just Ephesus. We read in the letter to Sardis at the beginning of chapter 3. Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. These churches were drifting away from Christ. They weren't drifting away from Christianity, but they were drifting away from Christ. They were holding on to all the right doctrines and rejecting all the wrong ones. By all appearances, they were dynamic, doctrinally sound Christian churches. But nonetheless, they were drifting away from Christ. But before the letter gets into these things, it says some commendable things about the church in Ephesus. Jesus commends them for their toil, for their patient endurance, twice, for their intolerance of those who are evil, for not growing weary. And interestingly, it seems that they are commended for the very thing several of the other churches that these epistles are written to are rebuked for. They have not been tolerant of false teaching, whereas some of the others have been. You cannot bear with those who are evil But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, which is a false teaching. We'll get to that in future weeks. And actually, on August 4th, two weeks from today, we'll be talking about teaching that Jesus hates. But being faithful in this area did not make them faithful in other areas. It wasn't enough for the church to maintain doctrinal purity and repudiate false teachings. You see, these letters are the only indication that we have of how the church was doing a generation after Paul's epistles. And one thing we learn from these seven epistles of Jesus is that there are a variety of ways the church was being attacked or led astray. But here in Christ's letter to Ephesus, it is not persecution or tribulation or false teaching that's causing the problem, but the church's own sin. These people were solid in so many ways. They had so much to feel secure about. But instead of comforting them, Jesus works to disturb them and to make them feel insecure by threatening to come and take their lampstand away if they don't repent. He warns them that their loss of love for him is so serious as to, to require him to separate himself from them if they will not return. This is not just expressing disappointment in them. It's not just, you're doing fine, but you missed one thing. This is threatened removal. He will throw them away. There will no longer be a church. And in case it seems to you that I'm over-interpreting this removal of the lampstand as taking it to mean that it's Christ separating them from himself... Look at the reward that he promises them if they do repent and renew their love for Christ. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It only makes sense that if they don't repent, if they don't conquer, that if they don't regain their love for Jesus, they would not be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Which obviously means not having Jesus eternally. This raises two important issues. First of all, some might think this seems unfair or unreasonable. If not everything, these people are giving so much. How can Jesus be so dissatisfied with them? There is no one... I'm sorry. That's like a wife being dissatisfied with her husband after 20 years because he's not as infatuated with her as he used to be, even though he's faithful and attentive and helpful and a good father to the kids. So some people might feel that way about this letter. How can Jesus say, you know, here's this way you're failing? You know, there's, in a lot of relationships, there's a perfect distance in the relationship. Um, Sometimes a relationship works best if you see the other person every single day. But if you just see them every once in a while, the relationship doesn't work so well. And other times it's like, we can get along fine as long as we don't see each other very much. (laughs) Long as we just run into each other at the grocery store every couple months, we're we can be good friends, but boy, I wouldn't want her living next door, right? So there's a perfect distance in relationships many times. But with Jesus, it's different. There's no one, there's no one who's better off relating to Jesus from a distance. A relationship with Jesus only works at the closest level. It doesn't work to keep Jesus at arm's length. To visit him every once in a while. There's no sampling Jesus. There's no having a little bit of Jesus in your life. There's no having Jesus be one part of your life Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No man can serve two masters. This is clear. Jesus can't be a distant friend. He can't even be just a good friend. He must be your bosom friend, your best friend. He must be your soulmate, your true love If he only gets part of your heart, you see, then you don't really get him. You don't really see who he really is. There are two ways to look at this. One is to feel like Jesus is impossible to satisfy. He gets angry if we don't love him enough. The other is to see that in love, Jesus was so concerned about these folks... And the millions like them who would come later. And read this letter. That he warns them about the peril of their present state. You see there's something so wonderful. That missing it is absolutely terrible. And ought to be avoided at all costs. And if... We're not head over heels in love with Jesus. If we're not sold out to Jesus, then we just don't get it. We just don't realize who He is. There's something else which is stealing our affection away from Him. Something else to which we're looking to get our life instead of looking to Him. And Jesus knows that we need him more than anything else. He knows that loving him and knowing him is what gives us life. So he's not tolerant with people who just give him a little bit of their hearts. The second issue that this raises is the dangerous, I'm gonna, what I'm going to call the dangerous error of decisional Assurance. That's so theological. (laughs) Today, many Christians think that people are saved if they invited Jesus into their heart 30 years ago as a child, even though they now show no interest in Christ or maybe even have antagonism toward Christ. The problem is that if they really had invited Jesus into their heart 30 years ago they would still be living in Christ. True faith overcomes, you see. True faith endures to the end. And as Matthew 24 says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Each of the seven epistles in Revelation 2 and 3 end with a promise for those who overcome, who keep the faith in the face of all the opposition and temptation. And though the wording is different of what is promised each group, in each case, it's promising Christ and all of his benefits if they so prevail. The point is that Not everyone is promised these things. Only those who overcome, who are faithful to the end. This is a far cry from assuring people who came forward at the end of a church service 30 years ago and got baptized that they are saved even if they don't follow Christ today. The trouble is that this kind of thing can give people false assurance and therefore a false sense of security. The opposite of what Jesus is doing here in this letter. Here Jesus is saying that these people once loved him and yet now if they don't repent and start loving him again as they did before he will indeed reject them. But how can someone who loves Jesus at one point in their lives Lose their love at some other point. Falling away from Christ is a tricky subject. On the one hand, our Reformed theology tells us that the saints persevere in faith. On the other hand, the New Testament has many verses about falling away from Christ. The simple solution is that there are many who profess faith in Christ... But some of them have true faith. And some have false faith. Those with true faith persevere. And this is because true faith is something God gives. And when he gives it, he maintains it. He keeps it going. Those with false faith are the ones who do not persevere. As it says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they were. If they had been of us. They would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain. That they all were not of us. The fact is we can't see people's hearts. And so we don't know what's going on inside. From, from outside. This means. That when someone's faith is faltering, you don't know what's really going on inside. You don't know whether it's true faith, which is going through a hard struggle, as in the case of Peter when he denied Christ. Or if it's false faith that is beginning to show its falseness. Like Judas, when he betrayed Christ. So... What guidance do we give someone who professes faith when their faith seems to be faltering? Well, you don't assume the worst of them and accuse them of never truly believing. You don't even assume that in your heart. But you also can't just urge them to feel safe. After all, they might well be in great danger. All you can do is to help them see the crisis of faith that they're going through and encourage them to repent of their sin, return to their Savior, and resume the works of love that they did at first. That's just what Jesus does here. We want, I'm not trying to say that Jesus agrees with me, I'm saying I'm agreeing with Jesus. <laughs> We want, we want people to have assurance of salvation, if they truly have salvation. But, if it can, but it can be deadly for those who aren't actually saved to feel like they are. Now we need to get personal and ask ourselves questions from this epistle of Jesus. Have we lost our first love as a church or as individuals? Have we drifted away from the love of Christ we used to have? Just like the church of Ephesus did? When our person or church falls in love with Christ, and then years later that vibrant love is all but gone, something is very wrong. And this passage puts a red flag on it and says if this is happening, you need to treat it as a crisis and an emergency. This isn't just something that you try to get to someday. Something you'll hope you can do better next year. This is a call 911, pull the fire alarm kind of emergency. That's what Jesus is saying. You remember the parable of the foolish virgins who delayed getting oil in their lamps until it was too late and they were left out in the dark. That's a warning and similar to this about those who are in the church but who don't make it an urgent priority to be right with Jesus. This is eternal life and death stuff. If your faith is in the gutter, if your fruit is non-existent, if you are living a Christless life right now, if you are ignoring him or disobeying him, you should be feeling insecure. You should not be feeling safe because you can't know for sure if your faith is real. Instead of just trying to feel secure. God tells people in these circumstances to get secure. How do you get secure? Repent. Return. Resume. Repent of your sin. Return to your Savior. Resume the works you did at first. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that God has cleansed him from his former sins therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities you will never fall for in this way there will for in this way There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are the words of Peter in 2 Peter 1, 9-11. You know, one of the most glorious truths of the gospel is seen in this as well. The fact is there's a solution to sin. There's a solution to getting off the track. C.S. Lewis says, you know, when you get dirty, God has given us showers and soap and towels so you can go and cleanse yourself. You're not just stuck in your dirtiness. That's the beauty of the gospel. However, dirtiness isn't going to go away by just sitting and bemoaning how dirty you are. And dirtiness is not going to go away by not caring about the fact that you're dirty. You need to get up and take a shower. Now, I hope your love for Christ has not only continued, but has grown and deepened. And if that's true, then store this message away in case someday that shoe does fit. But in case... Or, in case you're trying to help someone who's in this situation, going through this kind of experience. And second of all, give thanks to God. For blessed are your eyes that they see and your ears that they hear. That's a gift from God that he's given you if you're, if you're in love with Christ and growing and continuing in that love and growing in that love. And one more thing. This passage seems to be talking about the big picture things. But the fact is that this happens to us in little ways every single day, every one of us. Sometimes we have a great time with the Lord in the morning, but by the end of the day, that's gone. (laughs) I go through this all the time. We're worried or frustrated or feeling sorry for ourselves. And these same things apply. Remember, return, repent, resume. You know, in marriage, there's a difference between the love that starts the relationship and the love that continues the relationship. You know, first of all, typically, not always, but typically you fall in love. And very rarely does anybody decide to fall in love. It just happens to them. It's very different than afterwards. Once you're married, you're supposed to cultivate love. You're supposed to work at love. You're supposed to nourish your love. So there's falling in love and there's cultivating your love. And those are two different things. And the same thing is true in our faith and in our love for Jesus. We didn't start it, but we are called to maintain it, to cultivate it, to nourish it. This epistle of Jesus to the church in Ephesus shows us that even by the end of the first century, some churches were falling into the trap of maintaining the structure of Christianity while neglecting the heart of Christianity. A trap which much of the Christian church has fallen into over the centuries of church history. You see, Christianity isn't just a philosophy of life or a set of beliefs. Here are people who had all that right, but were still missing the main thing. The heart of it all is knowing Christ. Having a love relationship with Christ. Now to the world, Christianity is merely a philosophy of life and a set of beliefs and an ethical code. That's all they can see because they can't see the living Jesus at the center of it all. They're blind to that. Now don't get me wrong. Christianity is A philosophy of life. And has a set of beliefs and an ethical code. But at the center of the whole thing is the son of God. Who lived on this earth. And who still lives today. And is still at work in this world. Revealing himself to people. And drawing them into eternal relationship with him. So let us hear Jesus' first epistle to the Ephesians and let us not let our love falter but renew it through repentance and remembrance. And now we come to the table of our Lord where he Both reminds us of what he's done for us and calls us to renew our love for him by putting it in front of us and asking us yet again to feed on him, to come to him, to welcome him, to open ourselves up and take him Let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, it is a great privilege for us to be the recipients of this feast. We know, Lord, that there's a greater feast coming and that this feast is just a tiny taste of what is in store for those who love Jesus. We pray now that you would enable us, O Lord to take this small bit of food and remember the feast that is coming and to take it and remember that it represents you the true food and the true drink and O Lord that we might be filled with you as we walk through this veil of tears on a journey to Mount Zion where we meet you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.